uh, how we set our minds, how, what we think about, what we set our minds upon. Uh, last week we saw that we need to take every thought captive and to bring it under obedience to the word of God. And we need to choose joy. Uh, we need to reject anxiety. Uh, we need to purposefully think right. Whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are honest, when we looked at that last week, and whatsoever things are true. And we need to purposefully think right. And we need to choose contentment. Uh, today we're moving into the realm of anger. Uh, is anger always sinful? Uh, no anger is, uh, I'll tell you no right off the bat, ang uh, anger is not always sinful. Anger was designed as a gift from God. Uh, all emotions are a gift from God. <coughs> there are times, there are places, there are circumstances that bring out the emotion of anger. And they are not always wrong. Uh, we know this because God gets angry. And God cannot sin. Amen? And the Bible tells us in Ephesians 4, 26 through 27, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. But someone who is always angry, especially at a drop of a hat, has something else going on that's crossed over into sinful anger. And Proverbs 29, 22 warns us, An angry man stirreth up strife, and a furious man aboundeth in transgression. And Christians are called to put off sinful behaviors, like sinful anger and rage. Uh, in fact, it says in Ephesians 4.31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away with you with all malice. And this word anger in Ephesians 4.31 is the Greek word orge, uh, which means anger as a state of mind, something that is constant in your life. And a lady once came to Billy Sunday and tried to rationalize her angry outbursts. And she says, there's nothing wrong with losing my temper. She said, I blow up and then it's over. And Billy Sunday responded, so does the shotgun. And he said, look at the damage that it leaves behind. Amen? And we as Christians are called to put these emotions away from us. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be ye kind, the verse just after this command, says, Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. However, righteous indication towards injustice and sin has a purpose and has a place within the body of Christ. There are times when it's right to be angry. If someone is defiling our church by bringing sin into the church body, we would be right to be angry. Amen? If someone is hurting our family, we would be right to be angry. Amen? But righteous anger should always lead to resolution. And something is done about it. A revelation of the truth is made. The person is brought to justice. There is a move to repentance, possibly. A forgiveness and reconciliation, hopefully. In Acts 21, we see Paul face some very angry people. We even see at one point Paul get angry himself. And we'll look at those verses in just a moment. In Acts 21, verse 17, Paul comes back to Jerusalem from his travels and missionary endeavors with the Gentiles. When he comes back, he is brought before James. By the way, this is happening right after he writes the book of Romans. Uh, we just finished the book of Romans, and he is planning on going to uh, to Rome to see the church, a church he had never even visited before, but heard of and met many of the members of the church in his various travels. And he wanted to go there, but on his way to Spain, 
Uh, but first, he knew that he needed to go to Jerusalem. Some other churches had raised money and wanted to give the church at Jerusalem some money to be able to help those who were suffering under persecution. And so he had to go to Jerusalem first. This is where he is. This is where he comes. And this is that moment. And when he comes back to, uh, to Jerusalem, uh, he come, he's brought before James, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, and the elders that were present there. And many of the leaders rejoiced in what the Lord was doing among the Gentiles. Uh, but there were also many who were zealous of the law. Look at verse number 21 in your Bibles there. It says, And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among Genti the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. They were upset that Paul was teaching the Jews that were among the Gentiles to forsake Moses and not circumcise their children, which, by the way, was not true. That's not what Paul was doing. Uh, he only told them that the Gentiles were not required to circumcise or to follow the law in order to be saved. He was telling them it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but it is by grace, through faith. And they had witnessed uh, that... Uh, uh, oh, excuse me. They had witnesses that were trying to testify against Paul to this cause, that he, that he had been telling them that they didn't need to follow the law, although that was not exactly what he was doing. They were twisting his words. And these Jews came up with a solution to let Paul prove that he was not forsaking the Mosaic law and their traditions that they had. And he would go through a purification process, and they would take and he would take four men who had given, uh, had completed or taken a Nazarite vow, and help them fulfill their vow, complete their vow, which would include Paul paying for the expenses of the sacrifices, concluding their vows. And this would be quite an expense. The Nazarite vow in the Jewish tradition in the church, they, there were some that would take on this vow to be a Nazarite for a, a period of time. Some were told to be by God to be a Nazarite for life. Uh, but some would take it on for a period of time, and they would not, uh, they would not uh, eat anything that would defile. They would not touch anything that was dead. They wouldn't cut their hair. Uh, they would uh, do multiple things that they were required to do for this vow. At the completion of this vow, they were to make a sacrifice of an uh, uh, unblemished lamb. And uh, so Paul is being told, if you want to show that you, have, uh, that you have not forsaken the Mosaic law, then I want you to pay for these things. Now, this is quite an expense uh, for Paul. I mean, considering he is a missionary who has supported himself. Imagine if a missionary came to visit us and we don't support them. He, they support themselves. They, uh, they uh, do something to, on, on their own to support themselves while in a foreign country. And uh, we tell them, hey, you're required to prove to us that such is such. And uh, you need to go pay this uh, expensive fee for four men and uh, to prove that this is a, what's going on. This is what's going on in the Jerusalem church. Well, Paul willingly goes through this process to keep the peace. Uh, but while he was at the temple, some Jews began to stir up the people. Uh, verse 27 says, and when the seven days were almost ended, this is the purification process he was asked to go through, and the Jews which were of Asia... When they saw him in the temple, stirred up all people and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place, and further brought Greeks also into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. Now this is what they, where, where they get that. It says, For they had seen before him, uh, before with him in the city Trophimus and Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. They saw Trophimus with Paul in the city, not in the temple, but in the city. And then they saw Trophimus in the temple, and they thought, well, he must have brought them in. 
They didn't have evidence. They didn't look to hear the whole story. They didn't know what was going on. They assumed something, and they began to attack him. A great crowd of people ran together and took Paul and cast him out of the temple and began to beat him to death. And they would have succeeded in killing him had the chief captain not taken soldiers. Some ran and told the chief captain, and he ran with his soldiers and centurions to pull Paul from the fray. They didn't know what happened. They didn't know what he did to cause all of this. They assumed he had caused something and uh, chained him up and began to take him out. And the captain took him out and away from the people and brought him to the castle for protection. The Bible says he would, they had to carry him out because there were so many people. The soldiers had to carry him out of the area. But he didn't know what to do with him. And while on the steps of the castle going into the, uh, going into the safety there, Paul tried to reason with the men and asked the centurion, asked the captain of the guard if he could speak to the men and try to calm this situation and explain his situation. And while he was on those steps, Paul tried to reason with these men, starting in chapter 22, verse 1. And he began to go through this whole testimony of how he had been saved on the road to Damascus. And he had been a Pharisee. And he had gone through this training, but he had been saved and, uh, uh, on the road to Damascus, having previously worked with a high priest to persecute Christians. And how that God had sent him to the Gentiles to spread the gospel. And that they should accept Christ as their Savior. Well, this made the crowd go angry again. Verse 22 of that chapter, he says, And they gave him audience unto this word, and then lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from this earth. They want him to kill. They're not just get him away from them, but to get him away from the earth. <laughs> For it is not fit that he should live. And the chief captain brought him into the castle, and some more drama un unfolds there. Uh, but the next day, in uh, chapter 20, uh, let's see, what, where am I? Chapter 23. Now, uh, the next day, they, uh, the, uh, he is set before the Jewish council, including the high priest. Paul, in verse number 1, Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. And uh, he, all he said was, I've lived in good conscience. I've not, not done anything wrong here. And the high priest immediately begins to attack him and tell somebody to smack him. Uh, verse 3, he says, Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou white, whited wall. For, that, for sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. And then they stood by and said, Revilest thou God's high priest? And Paul said, I wist not, or I knew not. Brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. He immediately didn't know who this person was that yelled out for him to be smote. Uh, but he uh, immediately, he, when he was told this, he said, Wait, I haven't been judged. I haven't been even accused of anything yet. And you're telling me for them to strike me? He goes, that, There's nothing. You, you know, you're, you're commanding something that is against your own laws. Why would you do that? And he, he says, God will smite you. And they get angry because he's saying this against the high priest. Paul says, well, I didn't know it was the high priest. He said, but uh, as it is written there, uh, thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of the people. He goes, give honor to whom honor is due, in other words. And Paul spoke up in anger here. And it was not sinful anger, but because sinful behavior of the high priest. Uh, but as soon as he realized who the high priest was, he gave him a level of respect. Paul eventually found himself out of this tight spot. Uh, but what a picture of anger gone awry. Amen. What an incredible story. 
And God would use this situation to get him to Rome as he had planned to go, but uh, that was going to be the end of the road for a little while. He didn't plan to stay in Rome quite so long. In fact, he would be there uh, awaiting his trial with Caesar. And while he was there under house arrest, he'd be able to preach the gospel and help Christians that were there. But here in the story, there are two examples of anger that give us a very different view of what anger looks like. Anger is an emotional response that wells up inside of us when we come against a blocked goal or else confronted with a truth that disturbs our comfort or our way of life. The Jews did not like the idea of the Gentiles and the Jews being equal. They didn't like that Paul was encouraging the Gentiles to not keep the laws of Moses. Why should they get away so easily with things? Why should they get salvation so easily, they thought. If they wanted access to their God, would they not have to keep the law like they do? But they did not realize that they did not have access to God through the law. They could not keep the law sufficient enough to allow them access to the throne of grace. It's only through the blood of Christ, not doing well enough, not doing good enough, not keeping the law well enough, because none of us are able to keep the law as a whole. If we break the law at any point, we have broken the whole law. We cannot keep the law well enough to be able to access God. We can't do it, and neither could they. But they had pride in the things that they did do and overlooked the things that they didn't do and took pride in the fact that they were better than the Gentiles who had no law. And God, that was not God's plan all along. God wanted the Messiah to be the one that would grant them the access. They didn't realize that they had access through Christ. Within this story, we see two extremes, some principles that can guide, and some principles along each that can guide us in our anger. So we see, first of all, number one, ungodly anger. Ungodly anger. The Jewish people in their zeal were ungodly in their anger. They sought to kill Paul based upon what they assumed to be true. Ananias, the high priest, judged Paul before even hearing him out. Benjamin Franklin is known for the quote, Whatever is begun in anger ends in shame. Amen. We see some common principles regarding this kind of anger. Under, under, uh, excuse me, ungodly anger, first of all, letter A, skews the truth. Ungodly anger skews the truth. The Bible says in verse 21, and they, were, they, were, uh, and they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles. This is back to the uh, church where they were gathered and uh, a meeting with the, the council of the elders. And they were attacking Paul, saying, uh, We have been informed that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not circumcise their children, neither to walk after the custom. They skewed the truth of what had happened. The Jews that were within the church skewed the truth in order to be able to accuse Paul. Paul did not teach the Jews to forsake the law of Moses, and especially circumcision. He just rejected the idea that the Gentiles needed to follow the law in order to be saved. But these Jews were more concerned with their standing. Being in a place that was higher than these Gentile believers, that they twisted the truth in order to make Paul look worse. Ungodly anger will twist the other person's words to say something that they didn't say. Godliness is concerned about the truth. When in anger, the words or retelling of something that happened gets twisted around, it's always ungodly anger. 
Always. Second, ungodly anger attacks the person. Ungodly anger attacks the person. When the seven days, verse 27, it says, And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands upon him. They attacked Paul, not the situation. They didn't attack what they thought he was saying. They didn't ask him about it. They immediately went to attack the person. And the Jews that were in the temple in their ungodly anger tried to attack Paul, not the situation, not the sin that they perceived to have happened. They had no design to fix the situation or correct Paul to teach him the truth. They were just angry enough to kill. Later in verse 31, the Bible says, And as they went about to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in the uproar. We see how far it's gone. Their anger has gotten to the point of killing. You know, it's interesting that uh, police say and detectives say that the vast majority of homicides that happen, happen if it's, a, if it's a wife that was killed, often they look at the husband first. If it's a husband that was killed, they look at the wife first. How sad is that, isn't it? That the closest relationship that could ever be, that history has taught us, that's the place we go to first. The place where love is supposed to abound, where trust is supposed to abound, that a home can get so angry and so bent uh, out of shape that it goes to murder. Ang ungodly anger always ends badly. It skews the truth. It attacks the person rather than dealing with the situation. And far too often, ungodly anger does not try to attack the truth, the situation, the sin, but they attack the people. The argument becomes nothing more than just an abusive personal attack. Names are called. Extreme statements or accusations are made. And these kinds of arguments are often called ad hominem fallacy, in which a person discredits or rebutes an argument by attacking the speaker themselves rather than the argument itself. They're only focused on getting back, getting even. These attacks never help the situation and only end up feeding the argument and spiraling sinful anger out of control. And it can be helpful to see how Jesus himself handled this kind of argument from his own enemies. They tried to attack the person rather than the situation. John 8, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for the rejection of him. And in the heat of the discussion, the Pharisees respond by saying in, in John 8, 41, Ye do the deeds of your father, then said they to him, uh, he said, ye do the deeds of your father. And then he said, said they unto him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Now that kind of, you can gloss right past that unless you really understand what they're saying. The Pharisees believe that Mary was impregnated by Joseph before they were married, making Jesus a son born out of wedlock. And this was, of course, a false accusation since God was their father, his father. But even if the accusation had been true, which it wasn't, but even if it had been true, would this have, his being born out of wedlock, negate the truth of his words? Would that make every word that comes out of his mouth false and lies? No. Their argument wasn't to, to combat what he was saying. They were attacking the person. Clearly and logically, the answer is, his truth, truth is truth, no matter what is spoken, who speaks it. 
Interestingly, Jesus never answers their charge. He, but over and over, he ends up directing his attention to the truth. John 8, 42 through 43, says, Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? He went to the truth of the matter. Didn't deal with their false accusations to him or his personal attacks against him. He just dealt with the truth itself. Jesus just focused on the truth. Even when his enemies tried to attack him personally, ungodly anger skews the truth and it attacks the person. But it also often, letter C, rushes to judgment. It rushes to judgment. When Paul is brought before the council of the Jews and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he claims his innocence. Verse 1, uh, that, that chapter 23, said, And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in good conscience before God until this day. He said, I've lived honestly. I have a good conscience. I haven't done anything wrong here. But the high priest Ananias rushes to judgment here. Now, I, uh, verse 2, it says, And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. In the heat of the moment, when tempers are flaring, it's easy to rush to judgment without knowing the whole story. Proverbs tells us, in Proverbs 14, 29, He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding, but he that is hasty of spirit exalteth folly, foolishness. You're hasty in your decisions. You exalt foolishness. It's foolish. It is a foolish person who judges a matter before it's revealed. i got to be honest with you and just be transparent. I know there have been times when I assumed the motives of someone else and I judged harshly only to find later that I misjudged the situation because I didn't know the whole story. I was foolish. My anger and my, uh, my anger then was unrighteous anger. It was ungodly anger. And I caused an offense because I rushed to judgment. And I had to go and do damage control because anger, ungodly anger always causes a tremendous amount of damage. And I had to earn the trust of that person back before I could ever have a friendship and closeness with them again and influence as a pastor and as assistant pastor at that time. I have to be very careful of this especially. My spiritual gift is exhortation and with this comes the ability to kind of see solutions as, uh, uh, of a, as a problem unfolds. You can kind of see the solution of it and kind of steps that you need to take in order to take care of it. But one of the faults of that is that uh, when acting in the flesh, I act on my own wisdom. And I can jump the gun and try to act and fix the situation before I know the whole story. So I have to stay yielded to the Holy Spirit so I can hear the whole story before I get prideful and say, Oh, this is what you need to do. <laughs> before I even hear the whole situation. I have to be careful. And I heard of a similar situation involving some executives from the Standard Oil Company in the 1930s. Uh, one exe senior executive of the then Standard Oil Company made a wrong decision that cost the company more than $2 million. Now this is the 1930s, okay? <laughs> and cost them $2 million. And John D. Rockefeller was then the running, running the firm. And on the day the news leaked, of, of out, um, uh, the day that it leaked out, most executives of the company were finding uh, various ingenious ways of avoiding Mr. Rockefeller that day, unless his wrath descend upon them. And there was one exception, however, 
Uh, he was Edward T. Bedford, a partner in the company. And Bedford was scheduled to see Rockefeller that day, and he kept the appointment. Even though he was prepared to listen to a long uh, harangue against the man who made the error of judgment. And when he entered the office, the powerful head of the giant Standard Oil Empire was bent over his desk, busily writing with a pencil and a pa on a pad of paper. Bedford stood silently, not wishing to interrupt. And after a few moments, Rockefeller looked up. He said, oh, it's you, Bedford, he said calmly. I suppose you've heard about our loss. And Bedford said that he had. He said, I've been thinking it over, Rockefeller said. Before I ask the man in to, in to discuss the matter, I've been making some notes. And Bedford later told his story of this, uh, this way. Across the top of the page was written, points in favor of Mr., and it had his name. There followed a long list of the man's virtues, including a brief description of how he had helped the company make right decisions on three separate occasions that had earned many times the cost of the recent error. He said, I never forgot that lesson. In later years, whenever I was tempted to rip into someone, I forced myself first to sit down and thoughtfully compile a long list of good points as I possibly could. He said, invariably, by the time I finished my inventory, I would see the matter in its true perspective, and I was able to keep my temper under control. There's no telling how many times the habit has prevented me from committing one of the costliest mistakes any executive can make, losing his temper. I commit it to anyone who must deal with people. Amen? From a secular worldview, uh, they had more wisdom than a lot of Christians have today. You know, if we just sit down and we get so fed up with someone, someone in the church, someone in our home, someone in our work, somewhere else, and we get so fed up with someone and we just only think of the, of the negative that we, have, that we face, if we would just sit down and think about the whole story, not rush into the judgment, but hear the whole story first of all, but then also think of both the positives and the negatives, we would be a whole lot more likely to make wise decisions. I heard of a, another situation that caused great damage because of anger gone awry. In the spring of 1894, the Baltimore Orioles came to Boston to play a, a routine baseball game. But what happened that day was anything but routine. The Orioles, John McGraw, got into a fight with the Boston third baseman. Within minutes, all the players from both teams had joined into the brawl. And the warfare quickly spread to the grandstands. And people began to fight in the grandstands. And among the fans, fans the conflict went from bad to worse. Someone set fire to the stands. And the entire ballpark burned to the ground. Not only that, but the fire spread to 107 other Boston buildings as well. All the damage that can be done by one choice. All made in the heat of the moment. We rush into judgment, and we don't think it through. Whether in word or in action, great damage can be done. So we see examples of some and some principles regarding ungodly anger. Let's quickly here at the end now look at godly anger. Godly anger. Godly anger recognizes and responds to sin with the intent of bringing the sinner to repentance. If we look at the teaching of Jesus in dealing with a fault of a brother, we can see a great example of godly anger dealt with in a proper way. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20 says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. By the way, it doesn't say go, go attack him, does it? It says tell him his fault. Deal with the issue. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. 
But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. He says, Verily I say unto thee, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you that if two or more shall agree on earth of touching anything, that they shall ask it, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst thereof. What a great picture of godly anger dealt with in a right way. The focus is reconciliation, not attack. With this in mind, let's look at a few principles regarding godly anger. First of all, godly anger is focused on the truth. Godly anger is focused on the truth. Paul was focused on the truth. When Ananias called for the council to strike Paul on the mouth before he even heard the truth. And then Paul, in verse 3, then said Paul unto him, God shall smout thee, thou white wall. White wall. Uh, for that, sittest thou to judge me after the law and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the truth. He immediately went to the contrary to the law. He immediately talked about the law being broken and not being upheld. And Paul's concern was that this man was speaking contrary to the truth of God's word. Ephesians 4, 25-27 says, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon thy wrath. Neither give place to the devil. If we focus on speaking the truth in love, we can deal with the situation in a godly manner. Deal with the truth. When we get angry and deal in lying and twisting the truth, we end up causing more problems and we end up giving place for the devil to attack. Be able to let him get involved and cause more problems, cause more division. Godly anger is usually focused on the fact that this sin will harm this other person or others around them. The focus isn't on the fact that justice needs to be done and you did wrong to me. Godly anger is focused on this is sin and it's harmful, and it's going to harm us, it's going to harm the people around us, and it's going to have lasting effects. We see this example in Jesus in Mark 3, 5. And when he had looked around about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he said unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. The Pharisees were watching. They were Sabbath day, and he, they were there together to watch if Jesus would break the Sabbath, if he would heal someone on the Sabbath, and Jesus knew what was going on in their hearts. They didn't care about this man. They didn't care that he was hurting. They didn't care that, care that he had the power to help him. They only cared about attacking Jesus. The Bible says that he looked on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their heart. What was his anger's focus on? His anger was focused on the fact that their hearts were hardened. They were hurting themselves with the sin. And by the product, they were hurting this man who they would deny healing. He was concerned about the fact that this sin was damaging people's lives. The Pharisees were watching to see if he would heal this man on the Sabbath. And he was angry at the hardness of their hearts. They were not concerned about truth. But Jesus saw the truth, the truth of their heart. 
He saw truth of the hurting man who needed healing. And he dealt with the truth in love. Godly anger is focused on truth. Secondly, godly anger also attacks the sin, not the sinner, not the person. Ungodly anger attacks the person. Godly anger attacks the sin. Paul pointed out that high priest Ananias was out of alignment with the holy God he was supposedly represented. He was uh, looked holy on the outside, but he was not keeping the law and keeping God's word in his heart. And that's where he pointed out the white, whited sepulcher. He said, you're painted white on the outside, but you're not doing the truth. Among Christians, godly anger, the emphasis is restoration. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a man in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The emphasis is reconciliation, restoration. When faced with righteous anger, focus on the sin, not the sinner. Then thirdly, righteous anger Here's the whole story. Here's the whole story. It's very dangerous to answer back before hearing the whole story. And there's been great damage done by answering too quickly. The Bible says in Proverbs 18, 13, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. It's foolishness and brings shame when we answer before we hear the whole story. The Bible says it's foolish for us to judge a matter before the whole story is told. Ananias made a quick judgment without hearing the whole story. But a wise person will listen before he speaks. James warns in James 1.19, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak, slow to wrath. As someone used to tell me, I think it was my grandmother, maybe it was my dad, I don't know. But they used to tell me, uh, whoever it was, it stuck. <laughs> I have two ears and one mouth. That means I need to listen twice as much as I speak. Amen? I need to pay attention with my two eyes, with my two ears, more than I do with my mouth. Anger can be very destructive force. It could damage a lot of relationships if handled incorrectly. Righteous anger should be resolved quickly. The issue dealt with and then forgotten. It doesn't dwell on the issue. It doesn't belabor the issue. It doesn't bring up the issue at a later date. Anger deals with the issue and moves on. James Packer in his book, Your Father Loves You, speaks about Jesus' example in regards to his anger. And Jesus, he says, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath and saw a man with a crippled hand, the story we just looked at. He knew that the Pharisees were watching to see what he would do, and he felt angry that they were only out to put him in the wrong. They did not care a scrap for the handicapped man, nor did they want to see the power and love of God brought to bear on him. There were other instances where Jesus showed anger or sternness. He sternly charged the leper whom he had healed not to tell anyone about it because he foresaw problems of being pursued by a huge crowd of thoughtless people who were interested only in seeing miracles and not his teaching. But the leper disobeyed and so made things very hard for Jesus. Jesus showed anger again when the disciples tried to send away the... <coughs> Excuse me. 
Send away the mothers and their children in Mark chapter 10. He was indignant and distressed at the way his disciples were thwarting his loving purposes and giving the impression that he did not have time for ordinary people. He showed anger once more when he drove out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. God's house of prayer was being made into a den of thieves, and God was not being glorified. Hence Jesus' angry words and deeds came. Commenting on this, Warfield wrote, A man who cannot be angry cannot be merciful. The person who cannot be angry at things which thwart God's purposes and God's love towards people is living too far away from his fellow man ever to feel anything positive towards them. Finally, at Lazarus' grave, Jesus showed not just sympathy and deep distress for the mourners, but also a sense of angry outrage at the monstrosity of death in God's world. This is the meaning of the words deeply moved in John eleven thirty-eight. Is your anger godly or ungodly? Do you skew the truth to fit your agenda in the midst of the heat of the battle? Then you have ungodly anger. Do you attack the person rather than the sin? Then you have ungodly anger. Do you rush to judgment about the matter instead of waiting to hear the whole story? Then you have ungodly anger. Ungodly anger needs to be confessed and forsaken. Again, Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind. So there's a put off and a put on. Just as I would take off my jacket and put off my jacket and put on a new jacket. That's the language that's being used here. We're to put off and put away anger and wrath and clamor and bitterness and all of those things. And he says to put on. Be ye kind one to another. Tender hearted. Forgiving one another. Even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Put away bitterness. Put away wrath. Put away anger as a lifestyle. Put away clamoring or e- and evil speaking and be kind one to another. Your mindset regarding anger will make a huge difference in your life. We have to put our emotions under obedience to God's word. Habitually angry people are miserable people. They face more health risks especially heart disease, than their counterparts. It's not worth it. Yield your emotions to God and allow him to take control. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would bless us today. Help us, Lord, as we look at these ideas of our mindset and how we allow our mind to rule our lives and how our emotions rule our lives. I pray that you would help us, Lord, as we deal with anger when we find ourselves that anger boiling up or coming up inside of us, may we take stock of that anger and look at these principles and say, is this godly anger or is this ungodly anger? Am I angry because I'm being selfish, because I had a need that was unmet, because I had an expectation that was unmet? Or am I angry because there was sin that is hurting this person or another person? And Father, when we look at that and cast it away, put it off, and put on purposefully and by your Holy Spirit's power, kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness. Father, may you help us with our relationships. May you help us with our mindset that we can live in peace, which you promise us. 
I pray that you guide and direct us, Lord, now for the rest of this day. Speak to our hearts in this invitation time. And may we, if we have seen any of these things that convict us, may we confess it here and now. Even as I speak these words, may we come to your throne and say, Lord, forgive me. Help me to be yielded to your Holy Spirit and yielded to your word and be in obedience to your word. I pray that you bless us now in Jesus' name. I pray these things. Amen. Let's all stand together. Let's sing a verse of invitation. We're going to sing almost persuasive.